The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. Remember that while the deceiver was still alive, he said, after three days I will rise again. So give orders that the tomb be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, the disciples may come, steal him, and tell the people he has been raised from the dead, and the last deception will be worse than the first. Take guards, Pilate told them, and go and make it as secure as you know how. They went and secured the tomb by setting a seal on the stone and placing guards. After the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary, Magdalene, and the other Mary went to view the tomb. There was a violent earthquake because an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and approached the tomb. He rolled back the stone and was sitting on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were as white as snow. The guards were so shaken by fear that they became like dead men. The angel told the women, Do not be afraid, because I know you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has been risen, just as he has said he would. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell the disciples, He is risen from the dead, and indeed he is going going ahead of you to Galilee, and will see you there. Listen, I have told you. Yeah, listen, as I have told you. So departing quickly, quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, they ran uh, to tell the disciples the good news. Just then Jesus met them and said, Greetings. They then came up, took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus told them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to leave for Galilee and they will see me there. As they were on their way, some of the guards came into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. After the priests had assembled uh, with all the elders and agreed on a plan, they gave gave the soldiers a large sum of money and told them, Say this, His disciples came during the night and stole him while you were sleeping. If this reaches the governor's ears, we will deal with him and keep you out of trouble. They then took the money and did as they were instructed, and the story has been spread among the Jewish people to this day. Awesome. Well, uh, if you you haven't yet already, uh, you want to open your Bibles to Matthew Matthew chapter 27 and 28. That's where we're going to be um, spending our time this morning, and and we're really honing in on Matthew 28.6, where the angel says, as Jared just read out, he is not here. For he has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Let's pray about this. Father, we, um, we want to let that sentence sink in deep this morning, Lord. We want our, our hearts to be able to absorb the truth of the gospel this morning, of the good news. Lord, we we ask that you would give us great joy and delight as we hear these words. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would lead us through this passage, that you would guide us through, Lord, that where uh, where our hearts have become hardened, Lord, towards the goodness of the resurrection, you would soften our hearts, Lord. We ask, Jesus, for you to infiltrate our hearts, to, to make us more and more like you this morning, Father. We ask these things, that you would do these things through your word, Lord. Not through um, my words, Father, but through your word. And so, Lord, we are, I ask, Father, that you would help me and guide me this morning. May you speak through me, Father. 
We love you, Jesus. Amen. A number of years ago, I was watching one of those uh, police shows where a camera crew follows around real-life police officers, uh, following them as they you know, arrest people and book people for speed and all that kind of thing. And in this one particular episode, uh, the, the police officer pulled somebody over, and this police officer was actually a plain-clothes police officer. He wasn't wearing the, the regular police uniform, and he was in, in an unmarked car as well. He didn't have the, the usual police, um, you know, police car, uh, but he had the lights and everything, and he pulled somebody over. And, and this lady who had been pulled over, she didn't know that there was such a thing as a police officer that wasn't wearing a uniform and that didn't drive a, police, uh, a marked police car, an unmarked car. Uh, and so she refused to accept his authority. She refused to accept the ticket. She was like, no, no, you're not a real police officer. And he was showing her the badge and, and everything. And the badge was his, his mark of authority, his stamp of authority. But to her... A police officer wears a police officer's uniform and drives a police car. A simple mistake to make. But he was, in fact, a real police officer. And uh, it it took another squad car to show up and and talk to her and say, yes, in fact, this is a police officer. We, We like to know that the person who has authority over us is actually, does actually have that authority. And just this past week, I was watching a similar kind of, uh, a similar kind of video and what happened in this case was, it was like the, the body cam footage, it, it was some police officers who had come across someone impersonating a police officer. It was a young man who was very zealous for the law, he was not a police officer at all, and he got himself a, a shirt and looked like a police officer's uniform, he put some lights on his car and made his car look like a police car and, and pulled somebody over for speeding, and then these Actual police officers, this is in America, they drove past, they didn't recognize him, they didn't recognize the car, this was their kind of main street, so they found, tried to find out what was going on. They discovered he wasn't actually a police officer, he, he couldn't produce a badge, he, he couldn't produce this, this stamp of authority. It was the same situation, but in reverse. See, when it comes to authority, we want to know that anybody who is exercising any kind of authority over us actually has the right to do so. If somebody asks us to do something or seeks to compel us to do something, we want to be sure that that person has the right to do so. And as a church, we've been in this series leading up to Easter, leading up to this day called King of Kings, where we've been saying that Jesus is our King. He is the one who has authority. And we did a series before this called Monarch, where we were looking through the books of Samuel and Kings, looking for this king, looking for this one who had authority, and seeing how ultimately this is fulfilled, all the prophecies about this king is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And if Jesus Christ is our king, it means that he has authority over us. That's what it means that he is king. His word is authoritative over us. He has the authority to command us to do what he wants us to do. And when we see in the Bible how he tells us how to live, uh, these are God's words and they have authority. And Jesus doesn't exercise his authority cruelly. We saw in week one of this series that Jesus is the king of compassion. He loves us in our weakness. He, is, he, he will not uh, break a bruised reed. He will not put out a smoldering wick. 
Last week, Mike Jontek from City on the Hill, Brisbane, he came in to preach for us and, and he showed us this is the king who is the, it's the upside down kingdom led by the upside down king. He, he came not to be served, but to serve. And then on Friday, if you could have joined us, uh, we saw this upside downness reach its zenith at the cross. He is the king who came to die for us, to take on the sins of the world. And today we're saying he is the king who is alive. He died on the cross and three days later he absolutely rose again and he continues to be alive right now. And if we were to come to our king and say, show me your badge, where's your authority? We would be pointed to the resurrection. We would be pointed to the empty tomb. This is Jesus' stamp of authority. This is how we know that he is the king, that he, he rose from the dead. He said, I am going to raise, I'm, I'm going to rise from the dead. I'm going to be killed, and then I will rise from the dead. And then he did it. And that means that everything else that he said can be trusted. Jesus is actually God, and he has unlimited and unending authority over us as the king of kings. See, the thing about the resurrection is that it has immense power. This is the kind of authority that he has. It has immense power. It has, a, it has the power to have a huge impact on our lives. The resurrection, it impacts the way that we approach life. The resurrection impacts uh, the way that we approach God. And ultimately, the resurrection impacts our eternity. It is just that powerful. And, and there are only really two ways that we can respond to the resurrection. We can either receive the resurrection or we can reject it. To receive it is to accept that the resurrection is actually true. It definitely did happen. And the result of receiving the resurrection is that our entire life changes and, and our entire life becomes formed around Jesus. To reject the resurrection is to say, this did not happen. That is not true. And the result will be that Jesus will mean absolutely nothing to you. He is simply a relic of the past. And there is no middle ground with this. Not even Jesus permits us to sort of half believe it. It's either true, and Jesus is everything, or it's a complete fabrication, and we can go on living life exactly as we want to. And Matthew is really helpful for us here. Matthew, who wrote this gospel, he's helpful for us because he presents these two options clearly. There are those who receive the resurrection and those who reject it. Those who rejected these are the religious leaders, the chief priests, the scribes. And they paid attention to all of the times that Jesus said, I am going to rise from the dead. And they took this very, very seriously. So they put measures in place. They didn't want rumors to spread that he had done this. They wanted to make sure this didn't happen. They wanted to make sure that nobody could falsify this claim. These are the ones who rejected. And then there's this other group, those who receive it, his disciples. And at this particular point in time that we're reading it, they seem to have all but forgotten his claims about the resurrection. And they are totally surprised when it happens. They're caught completely off guard. But these are the ones who end up with the truth. And Matthew, as Matthew presents these two groups of people, we're going to be offered an invitation that comes in, 20, in chapter 28, verse 6. Come and see the place where he lay. 
And we'll have the option to again receive the resurrection or to reject the resurrection. We're invited to come and see the empty tomb. Now a helpful way that we can um, think about this text is kind of like a, kind of like a sandwich. Imagine this text, there's, there's on the outside we have the bread, that's the stuff on the outside, and then on the inside we have the filling. On the outside, the bread, that's where we, we, we see the, the first group of people, the people who reject Jesus, and then the inside part of the passage, the inside part of the, the sandwich, is the people who receive Jesus. And so we're going to work from the outside in. So reading from Matthew, um, we're going to be looking in Matthew 27, verses 62 to 66, and then we're going to jump to Matthew 28, 11 to 15, that's the outside. And, and here we see the chief priests and the, and the scribes, they're trying to secure the end of Jesus. That word secure is used three times there. They're trying to secure the end of Jesus. And they do this over two different meetings. The agenda for the first meeting is that they want to ensure that nobody could claim that Jesus had risen from the dead. They had managed to kill him. That was, that was good news for them. But they also remembered the time that he explicitly talked about rising from the dead. So he still posed a threat to them from beyond the grave. The threat was this. His disciples could come and steal the body from the tomb, and then they could claim that he had been resurrected. And this, as they say, would be a worse deception from the first, than, than, than the first. This would be a huge headache for them. So the scribes and the priests, they, they went to Pilate to get further security added to Jesus' tomb. And Pilate sends with them a Roman guard. And a Roman guard, uh, that could be a reference to anywhere between 12 to 60 Roman soldiers. So it's not, we're not talking about one Roman guard, like a singular person, but a Roman guard, like a platoon. Up to anywhere between six, uh, 12 to 60 people, soldiers, fierce soldiers watching the tomb. And he also instructed them to put a seal on the tomb. That is, to, to, to make it so that if anybody tampered with it, tried to open it, it would be obvious, it would be clear. Can you see how important this claim of the resurrection is? This is making uh, this, the scribes and the chief priests and the religious people, it's making them very, very nervous. Everything hinges on this. If they can, can simply secure the death of Jesus, then this little movement will be done with. It, it had happened before. In the, part, in the, the hundred or so years surrounding Jesus, other people had risen up to claim to be the Messiah, and they had either fizzled out or the person had died, and, and everything had come to nothing. If, as long as they can make sure that he stays dead, everything will be fine. But if there is a claim that he's risen from the dead, then their headaches about Jesus will only get worse. And this is still true for us today. Everything hinges on this. Everything we do and say as, as people who believe in God, it comes down to this claim that Jesus is alive. Paul says as, as much in, in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. If the resurrection is false, we should pack up the chairs and go home. There, there is no point in us being here on a Sunday morning and no point in, ever, in us ever returning. And more than that, we are still in our sins. We are in a very bad way if there is no resurrection. We have no hope if there is no resurrection, if this is untrue. He also says in verse 19, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, 
That is, if, if, if all we have is to hope on the things that we can do and achieve and accomplish, we are, of all people, most to be pitied. If there is no resurrection, then it would be right for the rest of the world to look on us and pity us. And many people do pity the church. Many people do pity Christians. They, they disbelieve the resurrection of Jesus and therefore they disregard God, God altogether and the witness of the gospel. But I dare say that the reason for a lot of people, at least most modern secular people, is not that the claim of the resurrection is too hard to believe, but actually that the truth of the resurrection is simply too inconvenient. It interrupts their lives too much. This is certainly the case if you look at the religious leaders then who, who later on uh, rejected what the guards came and reported to them. They weren't, they weren't interested in the truth. The truth was just too inconvenient for them. All they wanted to do was cover up and pretend like it didn't happen. You see, if the tomb is empty, everything has to change. Your entire life must change. Your entire life can no longer orbit around you. If the tomb is truly empty, then our lives must be ordered around Jesus and we cannot ignore him. But this represents a change of the highest degree. It's too high for many people. We like the idea of Jesus saving us from our sins. Yes, and amen, that's so good. But the idea of Jesus being in charge, we don't like that very much at all. For many people, forgiveness of sins, that's good news, that's great. But to say Jesus is Lord, Jesus is King, that's a threat. When we say that Jesus is the King of Kings, it's a claim of ultimate authority. Of all the kings, of all the people, all the presidents, all the prime ministers, all the people in authority, Jesus rules over them all. And in our day and age, the idea of a king, especially here in Australia, is, we're a little bit removed from all that. The idea of a king who has authority from, over us, that's not, a, that's not a huge category for us. Even our prime minister... I mean, if Anthony Albanese came in and started ordering us around, we'd probably, you know, out of politeness, do a few things. But us Aussies, we don't have a huge amount of respect for authority all the time. We're kind of suspect of it. So what has the ultimate authority in our culture? It's inside our chest. Our hearts have the ultimate authority. We have phrases like, this is my truth, whatever that means. We say, this is what's true for me. If something is true for you and not for somebody else, then you're, talk, you're not talking about things that are true. You're talking about opinions. And opinions are fine. But the ultimate authority in our world at the moment is our hearts. And when we say that Jesus is the King of Kings, we're saying he is authority even over our hearts. And I'd hazard a guess that for most people who reject Christianity... It's not the facts of the resurrection. It's not that they can't believe in the facts of the resurrection. It's actually that they don't want to. It's, it's not that the resurrection is too unbelievable. It's that it shifts us too far away from being the center of the universe. And I say this because I think that the facts of the resurrection are actually incredibly compelling. Many people don't really investigate. They don't, they don't look into it assuming that it's built on myth and legend, but, but the, the facts of the resurrection go well beyond what is required. Let's just consider a few things here. Firstly, we've got to consider that Jesus actually existed and he was actually crucified. 
Historians today, whether they are religious historians, whether they are Christians or agnostics or complete atheists, they are virtually unanimous in the acceptance of Jesus' existence and his death on the cross. If you're going to reject that Jesus even existed, you have to close your eyes pretty tightly at the evidence of that. Secondly, the, the tomb was actually empty. If Jesus' body was there, the simplest and easiest way to refute the claims of the disciples that he had risen from the dead was to open that tomb and present them with his body. They couldn't do that. They didn't do that. Which means the tomb was empty. Which meant, okay, maybe someone's removed the body, we might say. Maybe somebody removed it. Well, let's think about this. If it was the religious leaders or the Romans, then these people who had a huge problem with the growth of the church, they had the key piece of evidence to refute the claim of the resurrection. They, they had the silver bullet that could kill the church then and there. They had the body of Christ. So if that's what's true, why didn't, they, why didn't they wheel out the body of Christ and say, no, here he is, he's not actually resurrected. And if we're going to say, well, then maybe it was the disciples who removed the body. We, we then have to accept that it, the, the, these 11 men and, and the others who were around them, who a couple of days before, they... They were completely spineless and lost all hope. They, they ran away. They, they, went, they, 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 were, they feared losing their own skin, and so they deserted Jesus. We have to believe that that group of people managed to overpower this Roman guard. And they used all of their skills as fishermen and tax collectors to fight trained Roman soldiers, anywhere between 12 and 60 of them. So I don't think we can claim that the body was stolen. Third point was that the first people to claim this were women. In this day and age, a woman's testimony would not be relied upon even in court. So if this was a fabrication, if they were sitting around going, we've got to come up with the most compelling story and convince people that he actually is still alive, then John says, why don't we say women were the first ones to see this? And we were based everything on, on women. No, they wouldn't have done that. Because... That they would not have held any kind of credibility back then. Fourth thing we can understand is that his disciples saw him. There wasn't just an empty tomb. He came back in a resurrected body. And the fact that names were used here, the fact that they, they didn't say, oh, a bunch of people did, but names were used here. The disciples saw him. It tells us that because this was written within the first generation or so, of, of believers, anybody could go back and find these people. They could go back and find Mary Magdalene. They could go and they, these names, they, they don't just color the story, they don't just make the story a little bit more interesting. These names are footnotes. Like when you write an, an essay and you put footnotes to back up your claim, these names are the footnotes. They're saying, this is the evidence. Go and talk to these people. Fifthly, many disciples died for their belief. Virtually all of the apostles who uh, they died believe in this. All they had to do to escape death was to say, no, no, he wasn't resurrected. This is, whole thing was a fabrication. But they didn't. They, they, people don't die for a lie. Something that they, they, they know to be a lie. They died for the truth that they witnessed. And then the final thing is that the apostle Paul believed it. Paul was the last of the apostles and he had an encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. Jesus literally showed up and, and knocked Paul off, on, off his donkey, off his horse. This Paul was 
known for intolerance and persecution of Christians. He was bent on destroying the claims of Christianity, but then he saw the risen Christ. He saw Jesus alive. And he bowed down to him as Lord. This is the, this is the equivalent of the most hardened atheist, whether it's someone like Richard Dawkins or Sam Harris or Ricky Gervais declaring Jesus is Lord. Can you imagine that? Ricky Gervais's next Netflix special, Jesus is Lord. That's the equivalent of this. One scholar I read this week put it this way, it's not Christians who are hard-pressed to prove the resurrection. It's unbelievers who are hard-pressed to disprove it. If you're here and you're not, you don't believe in the resurrection, we love the fact that you're here. We are so glad you're here. But the burden of proof is on you to prove that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. And Christians, we've got to become careful that we don't become proud and boast in our faith. We've got to remember that if it went for the Holy Spirit opening up our hearts and eyes to see the beauty of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, if it wasn't for the Holy Spirit doing that for us, we would remain in our unbelief too. We all want control of our own lives. All of us, left to our own devices, do not want Jesus to be king. None of us are clever or wise enough to choose to follow Jesus on our own. We need the Holy Spirit to open up our eyes to the truth of this. And if we look at these religious leaders, we see that it was actually too hard for them to believe also. The guards came, they reported what happened, and these religious leaders, they don't discuss the claims. They don't go, wow, we didn't expect that. They don't send someone over to the tomb to investigate. They simply go and create a false narrative to explain this away, and they pay off the guards, and they even blackmail the guards to cover this up. They pay them a large sum of money. It's an incredible sum of money they pay them. And then they say, listen, you go and tell people that you guys fell asleep, uh, and, and we know you're probably going to get in trouble from the, emperor, so from, from the governor, so just leave the governor to us. It's, it's blackmail. They're saying, listen, if you, if you can't keep your mouth shut, we can't protect you from the governor anymore. These men, they heard about the angel, they heard about the stone, they heard about the empty tomb, but it didn't suit them. It was too inconvenient and they covered up the truth. And the question we've got to ask, is that, is that me? Do I want to cover up the truth? You see, we might look at these guys and shake our heads at them, but we are presented with the exact same dilemma every single time Jesus' authority clashes with our own. Clashes with our own sense of autonomy. When we think or when we want or when we do something that goes contrary to God's word, it is our will squaring up against God's will. If Jesus is our king, then it is his word that wins out and we are called to obey him. We are called to obey God in our finances, in our sexuality, in our speech, in the things that we do, in the way that we spend our time, in absolutely every facet of our lives, we are called to obey our King. And when it is inconvenient to obey Him, and we don't want to, we're presented with the exact same scenario as these religious leaders. Do we subject our will and desire to His, or do we close up our ears and pretend it's not true? If we find Jesus' kingship and his authority over our lives to be uh, inconvenient for us, it's like we're trying to cover up the truth of the resurrection. We're trying to say, no, no, put the badge away, Jesus. You have no authority here. I want to do this right now. Can't you see that this is good for me right now? 
See, every time we sin, we're, we're closing our ears to the truth of the empty tomb. We're saying, no, no, Jesus, you don't have authority here over my life. This is why the resurrection changes the way that we approach God. We, we might be used to approaching Jesus, approaching God as if he's some kind of relic of the past. We might even have intellectual assent to the fact that Jesus was in fact God and he came and he lived the perfect life and he was crucified and that's all well and good. But we, we act and we live as if he's not alive still. He, he died and we believe the resurrection but we also kind of think he's gone like as if what Christianity is was this religious leader from 2,000 years ago who left a bunch of instructions and so we've got those instructions here and so we just do our best to obey them as if it's some kind of relic from the past and we reject the fact that Jesus actually is alive right now today living at the right hands of the Father that's where Jesus is alive in his resurrected body he is alive right now he is our almighty and sovereign king and he has all authority to govern us and direct us as we see fit. It's kind of like when you're driving on the highway down in Brisbane and you get to that point where you know where the speed cameras are and, and everybody slows down a little bit. Even if they weren't speeding, we all slow down. Or when you're driving and you see a police car and you're like, slow down a little bit. I mean, you weren't speeding, but you just slow down just a little bit because that authority is there. Imagine driving to Brisbane and every 100 metres there was another speed camera. We would all be driving at 95 the entire way down. Now that's a bad illustration because it makes Jesus out to be this, this king all he wants is strict obedience and that's all he cares about. That's not him at all. But do you get the point? Like, we, we don't confine the resurrection, talking about the empty tomb. We don't talk about the, the resurrection only on Resurrection Sunday or only on Sundays. This has got to be something that is a reality for us when we open our eyes in the morning. Every single moment of the day, allowing the authority of the empty tomb, the authority of Jesus presented for us in the empty tomb to, to guide us as we go. And it is our glad and joyful duty to obey him, to live lives and to, to lose our lives in him that we might find life in him. There is no one like him, no one greater or more holy or more powerful. There is no king like him and he is alive forever. And we are called to see our very much alive King Jesus and to bow down and to worship him. He deserves absolutely nothing less than that. And this is what this text is drawing us to. It's drawing us to worship. It's inviting us to enter this tomb, so to speak, to come and see the place where he lay. And it's inviting us to, to worship him. This is the, the filling in the middle of the sandwich. In this section, verses 1 to 10, the women, they come to the tomb, they enter, they enter the tomb, um, they, see, sorry, they see that it, the tomb is empty, and then they rush out and they find Jesus and they fall to him in worship. They grab hold of his feet and they worship him. This is the invitation of this text to come and fall at the feet of Jesus and worship him, worship him as the alive king. Matthew records that these two women, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, go to the tomb on the first day of the week. In the other Gospels, we'll see that other women are recorded there as well. Now, Matthew doesn't tell us the reason for them coming to the tomb, but Matthew and Luke do. It's to bring spices to anoint the body of Jesus. These spices were there. It was a practice to honor him, as well as to prevent odor from the decaying corpse. And this is important because it tells us that these disciples were not expecting to find anything other than the dead body of their friend. 
They're expecting to find death and decay. And I want us to sit in this for a moment because this text is teasing out the reaction of these women. You see, our experience of this world is that death is the end. And we get bombarded with this message every single day. It's like a a marinade for our minds. Death is the end. We get told that this life is all that there is. And so we must make the most of this life by having the best things, by having the nicest experiences, by having the biggest impact on those around us. We come to believe that our our lives will only be worthwhile if we have these things, if we have the nice house, have the nice car, have the nice friends, have the nice experiences, have have just the impact. As long as life goes generally well for you, then your life will be worthwhile. And in that mindset, death is the most abrupt end. It is the interruption to all that is beautiful and cherished and lovely and worked for. And therefore, because of that, we we begin to fear death. And this fear of death makes us slaves. The writer of Hebrews says this in chapter 2. He says, Jesus came as a person and died as a person to free those who were held in slavery all their lives By the fear of death. Jesus came to free those who were held in slavery all their lives. They're enslaved all their lives. Who were they held enslaved by? The fear of death. The fear of death holds us in slavery all of our lives. How does it do this? If you fear death, then you believe that death is the end and you've got no choice but to get your sense of value and happiness and meaning from this life on this side of eternity. You've only got one life, we're told. And if it isn't filled with the nice things and experiences, then you've wasted us. Then you've wasted your life. And this dooms us to slavery. It's that drastic. It dooms us to slavery. Think of a little girl who who wants to be a lawyer when she grows up. She's got a keen sense of what is right and wrong. She's got a passion for justice. And so she studies hard, she works hard, and she does quite well. She gains a lot of self-confidence in her work and a lot of status amongst her friends and her family because of her work. And it feels really good. Like She's starting to actually feel like this is making me who I am. I, I, I need this. She starts getting paid well. The pay that she receives, it starts to unlock other opportunities for her. And she, she starts to enjoy her work more than just as a blessing. It starts to be something that she needs. And imperceptibly over time, the status and the confidence and the pay and the income and everything, it takes over. And before she knows it, she's no longer working for the joy of her job. She's no longer working for justice or for what's right. She's working that job to keep up appearances, to maintain her lifestyle, to maintain that status amongst people. The only way that she can keep keep getting that is if she works harder. And so she works harder and harder. She puts in longer hours in the office. Her weekends get smaller and smaller. She she has to get the promotion. So she she has to impress the boss. She has to, to be more effective. She has to cut corners here and there because everybody else kind of does it. Everything comes second to her work. 
Her marriage comes second to her work. Her kids come second to her work. Everything comes second to that, and now she's a slave. Because if she stops working, she's nothing. Her value comes from this life only. She has to work as a slave. She's got no choice. This is where her value comes from. And we could apply that to every single facet of our lives. Whether that's our careers, or our marriages, or our kids, or our lifestyles, or whatever. When we think, I need this and I'm nothing unless I have it, that's when we're becoming enslaved. And the fear of death, the fear of losing that thing, makes us enslaved to that. The fear of death will turn anything that is meant to be a blessing into an absolute thing. It it will form it and, and misshape it so that we no longer say, this thing here, this is a privilege and a blessing and I'm able to serve God with it. And it will instead say, I must have it. And if I don't have it, then I'm nothing. And this puts pressure on this life. We, we actually cease to enjoy it. We're not, enjoying the, we're not working for the enjoyment of it. We're enslaved to it. Because if this is taken away, we're nothing. And death has no mercy. It can come for anyone at any time. And we know this as a church, don't we now? This is, this is how the fear of death can control us. This is why the claim of the resurrection is huge. Our response is so important. These women come to the tomb with the fear of death, expecting to find death. But the angel of the Lord meets them and says, you're looking for Jesus, who was crucified. That's important. He was crucified. This is not, they didn't make a mistake. They didn't go soft on him. He was dead. He is not here. Now that might freak them out. He is not here. Why is he not here? Mary saw where he was buried. He's not here for he is risen. He got up. Death couldn't hold him down. He is risen just as he said. Like if Jesus never talked about this, this would be remarkable. But the fact that Jesus talked about this no less than six times in Matthew's gospel alone, this is phenomenal. And then he says, come and see. Come and see. Come and see the place where he laid. This is the invitation to each one of us. Come and see the empty tomb. Come and see it for yourself. Because if the tomb was not empty, if his body was still there, then we have every reason to fear death and we are doomed to try and extract meaning and happiness and purpose out of this life out of this out of life out of this side of eternity because that's all that we get it also means that Jesus isn't the king and we have every reason to reject christianity but if the tomb is in fact empty and Jesus has in fact risen from the dead then we no longer need to fear death and the pressure is off We don't need to try and create our own purpose. We don't need to try and find our own meaning and happiness from the things that we can do and accomplish in this life. This is is why the resurrection changes the way that we approach life. The resurrection means that there's no longer any pressure on us to have the nice things and to live the nice life and to have the greatest impact. It removes all of that pressure because death is not the end. We have no reason to fear death. 
We are liberated from the fear of death. We are liberated from the slavery that comes from the fear of death. And we are freed up to enjoy all the blessings that God has for us. Not grasping onto them as if they are everything. We are freed up to endure the trials, knowing that we will at some, they will at some point come to an end. We are freed up to worship God. If the resurrection is true, then that sets us free. We're no longer enslaved to having that house, the biggest house. We're no longer enslaved to live in a particular lifestyle. We're no longer enslaved to our jobs or our careers or enslaved to some ideal of the best life. We, we, if we get that, praise God, and we can, we can enjoy those things and use that to worship Him and use that to, to bless others. And if we don't get that, praise God, because death is not the end. And all that is worked for and cherished and beautiful and, and lovely of this life will be perfected in the life to come. We are guaranteed it. Why? Because Jesus is alive. He did actually rise from the dead. And those who trust in him can, can know, because he did this, that we also will rise again with him. That we don't have to fear death. That we know that there is a resurrection to come. And like him, we will rise again with perfect bodies into the new heavens and the new earth that it will be absolutely perfected and we will enjoy Jesus Christ in unending bliss. It means that everything that Jesus said can be trusted. It means that all the trials and the difficulties that we follow, that way we come across in this life, we know that they will come to an end because it's already started. Death has started to become undone. It started to work backwards. And we live in this present moment where the resurrection began with Jesus. He is the first fruits. He is the first one to be resurrected. And then the rest of us, God calls us the harvest, that we will be like him. We will, we will rise again in the new heavens and the new earth. If Jesus can pull off the most extravagant miracle out of his death, then, then everything that he said about himself is true. It means he wasn't just a person. He truly is God. And everything that he promises us, the promises for those who trust in him can be trusted. See, see the resurrection changes not just the way we approach life. It, it changes not just the way we approach God. The resurrection changes our, our eternity. It means that for those who put their lives into his hands, he will carry them by his love all the way to the Father in heaven and bring us life everlasting in perfected bliss. And friends, the beautiful thing about this is that we do not deserve this. Like, none of us did anything that impressed God. We went, oh, I should send my son to save that one because that's worth it. He, he's worth it. She's worth it. None of us did that. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. None of us can receive the resurrection by any merit of our own. But belief isn't awarded to the best of us or to those who have their life altogether. Belief in Jesus Christ is for those who know that they don't have it altogether. They've got nothing to bring. Those who know that they come to the cross with empty hands. We cannot add to this. We cannot help Jesus lift our burdens off us. We, we cannot make it easier for God to love us. And there is nothing that we can do to make God stop loving us, to make him love us less. 
We don't have anything to prove with Jesus. We don't have to pretend with Jesus. If we want this eternal life, we simply come to him with empty hands and we receive him all the way. We accept that it was our sin that put him on the cross. We accept that it was our death that he died. And we accept that when he was raised, we were also raised with him. So friends, this is again the invitation to us, whether you're a believer or not, to come and see the place where he lay and to fall at his feet like these women did and worship him. He is not here. He is risen. If you're here and you're not a believer, this is our invitation to you to come and consider the evidence. And can I put it to you once again? If you're not a believer, can I just ask you, and can you just be honest with yourself? Is the fact that I can't believe, ask this question, is the fact that I can't believe, is it because I find that too outlandish? Or is it because I just don't want to give up the authority that I have in my own life? I just don't want someone else to be in charge. And I'm not asking you to answer that to me or anybody else here. Just ask yourself that question and be honest with yourself. So if you're here and you're not a believer, again, we are so glad you're here and we would love for you to consider the, the wonderful blessing it is to follow Jesus and to hand your life over to him. And can I say to the believers in our midst today, come and see where he lay. None of us should be proud to go, I don't need to go in there again, I've done this. Like, no, come and see where he lay. It is good for us to, re- to remember that the tomb is empty. This is Jesus' badge of authority. This is where we know he has authority over our lives. And he is not a cruel taskmaster. He, he is the king who, who came to serve, not to be served. He, he is the king who has compassion over us in our weakness. He is the king who is lovely. Friends, we, we should want this to be true. Because if it's true, then we are free. And if it's not true, we're not. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Centre Church, located on the Sunshine Coast. We exist to make, mature and multiply disciples and communities that depend upon, declare and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. We provide our podcasts free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others. But please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC.